Hello, everyone. It's Patrick, and welcome to the 2020 Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1. Um, I'm here today with Stuart Bryant, who's been with ITB since pretty much the very beginning, and whose last week of medical school is next week. This week. This week. All right. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, in today's episode, we want to give you just a little bit of an overview about what our plans are for this year's series. And then uh, uh, let you know about some of the other step one resources that we have that can help you study on the go. And then because it's such a hot topic, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about a particular virus, which we won't mention now. We'll leave it as uh, dun, dun, a teaser. You'll, dun, you'll have dun, no idea what virus dun, this is. Dun, 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 uh, March dun, 9th, 2020. Yeah. All right. As many of you know, if you've listened to the podcast recently, we released our mobile application, and I have released a number of spots uh, promoting that and putting it out on social media. Because why? Well, because we're trying to get people to download the app. But why are we trying to do that? To help you. Because with Inside the Boards, we've got a number of different kind of free resources that you can use to study on the go. Uh, first up, all of these are within our mobile application. You can just go to our website, insidetheboards.com, create an account, uh, free Boards Insider accounts, and then download the app and get access to number one, Physiology by Physio. This is a podcast we released last year, which is, as you can imagine, all about high-yield physiology. It's kind of the perfect supplement to uh, go through physiology topics during your dedicated prep time, and it's supported by our friends at Physio and is hosted by Greg Rodden, also part of our platform and has been doing his work as an intern in pediatrics this past year. Uh, next up, with the app, we have organized the past Step 1 Study Smarter series episodes into playlists. So there are three collections up there now. So if you are interested in that, you can get uh, the, the playlists with uh, focus topics um, all organized in one place and add slash droning on free. So the portion of the podcast you're listening to right now that would be cut off, and we just launch right into the content, which is what the app is set up to do. Hey, that sounds kind of nice. Right? Yeah. yeah. Big request. Don't have People to listen like, to our voices mumbling on about you yeah. know, important stuff and updates and news that may no longer be relevant to you. Yeah, and which just make you hit the fast forward button. But no, not on the app. Well, you can hit the fast forward 30 seconds button on the app, which is a cool feature we put in and sort of expected for an audio company, but whatevs. What else do we have? Oh, oh, big news. So crush step one. As you also, if you're a listener, probably know Dr. Ted O'Connell, who is the author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, uh, is our chief content officer. And uh, through the generosity of Elsevier, his publishing company, and Dr. O'Connell, uh, we are releasing a Crush Step 1 podcast. So another opportunity to learn on the go. So this is basically an audio version of Crush Step 1. 
you can go and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. But we're going to be dripping out those episodes essentially weekly to, to cover all of the chapters of that particular book. However, if you create a Boards Insider account and download our mobile application, you can get exclusive access to the entirety of the Crush Step 1 audio right now. So there you go. We've got our Past Study Smarter series. We've got uh, Crush Step 1, Physiology by Physio. And of course, this current USMLE Step 1 Study Smarter series, all to help you during your dedicated prep time. Um, and then, of course, our Step 1 Audio QBank is a premium feature of the mobile application, which is basically what it sounds like. It's a QBank, but in audio form. So you can get more questions and uh, study on the go even more. Moving on to the 2020 Step 1 Study Smarter series. Stuart, what do we have planned this year? Oh man, Patrick. So we want to go through a bunch of things and talk about a lot of topics. And you've probably heard, you know, well, maybe you haven't, but if you're tuning into us for the first time now, uh, the Step 1 Study Smarter series has been done annually for what, the past three or four years now, Patrick? This will be the fourth year, which is pretty crazy. Wow. That's kind of insane to think about. Last When we first did this, it was just sort of like, oh, we're just going to hit all the topics in first aid and we'll see how we do. And year over year, we've kind of tried to approach that goal of perfection. This year's not terribly different, but I think we're going to try to dig in a little deeper. Usually in the past, we've kind of hit broad topics and with sweeping brushstrokes and I kind of want to pay a little more attention to things this year. So today we're going to talk about the important virology that we're uh, encountering in these harsh times, and then we'll uh, we'll move into in the coming weeks some work on biostats and really talk about the epidemiology and uh, math questions that people really hate to spend a lot of time on and can really get. Uh, you know, really buckled in and, you know, waste a lot of time on a test trying to figure out the math of the question. So we'll spend some time on biostats, followed by a bunch of like really deep topics like genetics and embryology, uh, some of the bigger topics that we think about in medicine, like pharmacology, cardiac and pulmonary physiology, reproductive physiology, renal and gastrophysiology. And then we'll hit the pathology of those topics as well. Sounds good to me. So if they're a first-time listener, they may be wondering. Um, well, probably not, hopefully. Um, but we'll clear this up anyways. But is this all you need to pass step one? I would hope so, but probably I would suggest <laughs> using this in addition uh, with the other stuff you're doing. So this becomes more of an adjunct or like a secondary resource. Well, what I like to say is it's the perfect supplement to the stuff you already use, like you were exactly. on the first day. So we're, we're not aiming to do like every topic that you would need to know for step one. Our goal is to hit high yield topics to give you something from each episode to take away from it and carry with you into the testing center on test day. Exactly. And if you're 
here for a primary resource, that kind of gets into something more like what the audio cue bank is trying to achieve. And maybe in the future, it'll be robust enough for that. But right now, use this to kind of help you relax, help you get a little bit of extra work in uh, while you're doing things on the go, whatever you're using a podcast for to begin with, right? Yep. And the only uh, other thing I would say before we kind of get into some more content today, if you are currently studying for step one, or you're a third or fourth year who's like, I'm pretty good at, I don't know, physiology topics or pathology topics, I would really like to help my fellow students do well on step one. Send us an email to info at inside the boards, and we're looking for uh, people to do kind of like, I guess, live tutoring sessions to kind of walk through uh, some of these question dissections with us, or to really help teach and elucidate the high yield topics from questions for those senior students. So um, yeah, anything to add on that? I mean, that just gets into the fact that, you know, for us, this is kind of uh, becoming more nebulous. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm not far out from this, but Patrick, I mean, you don't have to, but was it was it a little while ago when you took step one? Uh, yes, it was uh, a little bit uh, of a time ago. Um, I took step one in, oh my gosh, like 2008, 2008. And, and granted, I've spent the past, holy crap, 12 years um, doing, you know, work related to, you know, USMLE uh, prep, uh, writing questions, editing them. But, but yeah, the people most qualified to kind of discuss how things are presented on the boards or in, in the review books to help you prep um, are those people who are close to the test. So, you know, reach out to us if you think you have a particular, you know, talent or interest in teaching your fellow students, and we will be glad to have you join us on the podcast. And uh, yeah. So yeah, essentially, if you're interested in reaching out and interested in talking a little bit, you know, we can find a way to help work that into this whole program. So let us know. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, virology, just kind of start things off and, and get into this. So Biostat, stay tuned. And up now is uh, just, you know, to get our feet wet. So we have an 18-month-old male who presents to the ED after a one-day history of fever and irritability. Vitals show a heart rate of 140 a respiratory rate of 45, and an O2 sat of 88%. On physical exam, the baby boy is inconsolable, gasping for breath with the evidence of nasal flaring. He started on oxygen by high-flow nasal cannula and admitted to the hospital. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this child's illness? Is it A, measles? B, respiratory syncytial virus, C, influenza, or D, Coxsackie? And the correct answer here is B, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. So why is this one respiratory syncytial virus? So RSV is a very classic presentation in typically a younger child. 
you know, most children may actually get this and never really notice it. It may not be a problem and it may be, you know, you end up in the hospital for a few days while you're observed and watched on oxygen. Typically, these kids develop it before about the age of three and may just simply have like a basically, you know, a little bit of difficulty breathing, uh, maybe gasping for air a little bit uh, and have some fevers as well. So particularly on here, you see this child is having a lot of trouble breathing. They're inconsolable and they're gasping for breath. Typical picture there without something like a rash, without like a pneumonia picture, uh, you typically stay away from things like measles, influenza, Coxsackie, and you point more to an RSV picture. Typical, so this is a as a pediatrics pa- student, you're going to see an RSV patient. They're going to have some sort of respiratory tract infection. And if this is kind of a bronchiolitis where you'll hear this kind of wheezing sound when, they're, when, they're ta- when you're listening with the stethoscope, most common cause uh, by far and away is going to be RSV. So kind of getting into an epidemiology question there. So, I mean, RSV is, is a paramyx of virus. That doesn't mean anything to me, but for some people, for taking step one, that's an important thing. And it kind of fuses to cells and causes syncytial to form. Important things for them is you can test for this serologically uh, with an ELISA test. So that can ask a que- they can ask a question related to serologies and how those work uh, for a step one question as well. But basically, that's related to having... Uh, antibodies found uh, in relationship to a presenting antigen. Okay, cool. Yeah, that uh, that sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fair enough. So, uh, let's see. Answer choice A was measles. What do you know, remember the three C's of measles? Uh, yeah. So the the first one that I think of is coryza, which is basically uh, runny nose. Basically, they'll have a wet nose, they're blowing it, they're congested. Conjunctivitis is another, so red eyes. And uh, let's see, what's the third one? Hmm. That's easy to remember because it's one of the distractors listed in the same question as RSV. So it's cough. Cough, right. Yeah. Yeah, cough, horizon, conjunctivitis. Correct. So that's uh, kind of the paramyxovirus um, jam is the, the cough. And I always re- also remember, um, really, there's a fourth C, but it's actually a K uh, that I think of, which I wasn't going to say because uh, I knew it was wrong, but coplic spots uh-huh. are a, a, a classic board question tip-off, I guess, for measles, uh, where I guess in the roof of the mouth, they see, you see little characteristic pustules maybe, like little spots on the roof of the mouth that are described as grains of sand uh, with red rings around them. Okay, yeah, little bright red spots with a whitish center somewhere in the buccal mucosa. Yes. All right, nice. So actually, like, looking at the, the progression of this illness, 
people will get, kids will get the three C's, you know, cough, chorizic, conjunctivitis, then the development of the coplic spots, followed a couple days later by a maculopapular rash that starts on the head and neck and then spreads downward. So it's a central rash that spreads outward. Yes. Yep, that is true. What about the, uh, there's a, a notable consequence of measles that, that occurs sometimes years after an infection. Do you remember what that is? Uh, so they typically, so one of the things you may see is like um, testicular swelling and later infertility, if I'm remembering correctly. I believe that's mumps. Ah, yes, you're right. That is um, mumps. Because with mumps, you get the parotitis, the uh, orchitis. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. I'm thinking of the wrong disease, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. Remember that? Yeah, but I hated to think about that. That was my go-to for the actual board exam when I was studying. Yeah. Because it's this obscure fact that you would learn about a disease. Yeah, kind of. I, it's important. I mean, less so since, you know, we have vaccines. But um, if you do have a patient on the boards who has a history of uh, rubiola virus infection or, or measles, as we usually call it, um, who about a decade later uh, starts to have symptoms like personality changes, um, I guess. Fevers and headaches. Yeah, the strange behavior, myoclonus, starts developing, you know, motor or sensory neuronal derangements, um, then you should be thinking subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. It's actually four stages of this disease I was looking up, um, with the fourth one, fourth one being a vegetative state. So that's, that's pretty legit. Yeah. Well, all cases resulted in death, almost always fatal. Lame. Yeah, not really a, uh, a happy, happy situation for the uh, reoccurring measles disease. All right, that's enough about measles for sure. Um, influenza, <laughs> influenza was choice C. I, I guess, how do you think they'd put influenza up um, to distinguish it from something like RSV on a uh, board exam? Because in my mind, the symptoms that are listed here with this 18-month-old Fevers, irritability. Uh, there's no mention of like uh, aus- auscultory findings. Of course, you can't ask a 18 uh, month old if they have myalgias or arthralgias, things like that, sore throat. Um, the the clinical picture overlaps between RSV and influenza. So the way they would differentiate those on an exam. What what are your thoughts on the the most likely differentiators? I guess. I would think that this would, so you have to use epidemiology to your benefit here. If you're between flu and RSV in an infant, it should be RSV first, right? While it could be flu, um, that's going to be less likely than every child who gets RSV. Uh, a child with RS or with the flu is going to be pretty similar. They may actually have some uh, vomiting, I guess, or loose stool as well. Uh, but it's going to, you're right, it's going to be hard to see aches and like myalgias or headaches with those patients as well. 
I think the the lung findings are also going to be particularly helpful in that case. We didn't really get into the machining breath sounds, uh, which I, I would describe as like listening to R2-D2, um, very robotic and loud uh, when you listen on exam versus influenza. I wouldn't be expecting to see that classically. All right. Choice D was Coxsackie virus. What could we say about that? Uh, the rash is, you think about the rash for like uh, hand, foot, and mouth, right? Let's see. When I think uh, Coxsackie viruses, um, I think aseptic meningitis and then hand, foot, mouth disease. And then as a rare cause of um, like a viral cause of um, heart, inf- uh, heart infection, uh, myocarditis. Yeah, and pericarditis. Yeah. None of those are which we're really looking at here. All right, then let's move on. Fair enough. A 28-year-old male presents to the emergency department with fever and cough. He recently returned from a business trip to China where he visited factories responsible for the manufacturing of glass panels. His physical exam is significant for fever and tachycardia and notable for coarse breath sounds heard on auscultation of his lungs bilaterally. A CT of his chest shows bilateral ground glass opacities at the periphery of the lower lobes, which the following is the most likely diagnosis. Is it A, bronchiectasis, B, pneumoconiosis, C, viral pneumonia, or D, a bacterial pneumonia. How do you kind of attack this question, Patrick? I don't know. Being far out from step one is probably a little bit like being close to step one, but before taking it. <laughs> um, <laughs> because my my thoughts along these lines would be, all right, so this person has fever and cough, so they could probably have some sort of lung thing. That's pretty easy to to rule in. I'll be looking for pneumonia-type stuff. I remember from reading in step one that bronch- bronchiectasis is like a cystic fibrosis thing. Whether or not, now, mind you, whether or not these are actually enough to rule it out, this is you know, uh, how I would think about it. So bronchiectasis is kind of a CF thing, and I'm not getting a really good CF picture within this vignette, so I'm going to cross that one out. Pneumoconiosis, I'd probably want to leave in because they mentioned the person's job uh, being closely associated with um, glass panel manufacturing, and silicosis is one of the pneumoconiosis, so not going to rule that out yet. Viral pneumonia is high. I really want to pick that one because the presenting symptoms, fever and cough, plus uh, the the findings on imaging with bilateral ground glass opacities, uh, which is more like a viral pneumonia picture. So that's my best candidate now. Uh, bacterial pneumonia, of course, in, in the real world, it, it could definitely be bacterial, even with all the findings just mentioned, but more so um, in real life and even more so on the boards, you'd expect to see like a, a focal consolidation on chest imaging. So I'd probably pick uh, C, viral pneumonia. The viral pneumonia here. Yeah, and to be fair, this is a hard question and very well written to make it hard. Um, 
Oh, thank the you. point here is that you think more, this looks more built like a step two question almost because it's essentially making you run at a differential, figure out how are you going to rule out these answer choices based on the findings that you have. So this is a viral pneumonia. And what we were kind of getting at here is this could be a coronavirus picture where you're seeing a fever and cough and having a bilateral lung opacities in someone who's recently visited China. And then you see a little bit more of a difficult picture here while someone with like a, a silicosis um, or like a, a sandblasters kind of picture, uh, someone who works it with glass panels might have uh, a pneumoconiosis, the second choice, which you actually really liked. Um, and that would typically have um, the ground glass kind of opacities, but those are typically in the upper lobes of the lung, not lower, right? Yep. Bronchiectasis was a, a good throwaway. You said that would be more of a long-term chronic change to the lungs, like you would see in someone who was constantly infected and had a uh, a like a CF picture almost. And then a bacterial pneumonia, while it could be everywhere, is typically usually isolated to a single area of the lung at first. Uh, in viral pneumonia, you get an atypical picture where both lobes are involved. It's very diffuse, and you may just see opacities bilaterally. So for coronavirus, we kind of wanted to talk about it because this is the hot topic, right? Absolutely. But before we do that, is this a good question? Because with the answer choice being C, viral pneumonia, and D, bacterial pneumonia, um, we're talking about really an atypical pneumonia picture, right? Rather than a bronchial pneumonia uh, picture. And atypical pneumonia with the you know bilateral lower lobe opacities is not just uh, from viral causes because the most I believe the most common cause of atypical or walking pneumonia is mycoplasma. Mycoplasma, correct? Yes. So maybe I was just complimenting you on how good of a question you wrote, and, and you, know, you want to take compliment. it back. You want to walk it back. That's, and... Well, that's because I care. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to confuse people. So um, I suppose what we can then say is, all right, here's some live question construction in the making. Yeah, in in the making. So uh, what I would say is this, when you're looking at a question like this and how to assess somebody's understanding, um, our interrogatory here was which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? I think one way that, that this could be changed to make the answer, the correct answer, the single best answer, less ambiguous, would be to ask something more pointed, like which of the following is the most likely etiology um, of these findings or this patient's illness, something like that, or which of the following is the most common cause. And then to list answer choices where you could say A, bronchiectasis, B, pneumoconiosis or silicosis, C, specifically list a virus that causes pneumonia and then and then the fourth one would be a specific bacterial cause um, and note this like not hopefully this doesn't confuse anyone but 
in a question like this, you couldn't really have answer choice C, viral pneumonia, or a specific cause of a viral pneumonia, like a coronavirus, along with answer choice D, listing something like mycoplasma pneumonia, because you couldn't really differentiate a viral pneumonia from whatever virus versus a atypical pneumonia uh, from something like mycoplasma because they both show up pretty similarly in terms of clinical findings. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, and I, you know, things I'm thinking about, how could we make this, um, e you know, more specific? You could say, uh, you know, they did a bronchoscopy and uh, have a negative culture, for instance, which could help for bacterial pneumonia, ruling it out. Yeah, yeah. But ruling it out, yeah, it's difficult. Kind of the point of the test, right? Yeah. How... <laughs> And, oh. the, and the, you know, probably no sympathy from the students, but the very difficult job it is to write good quality single best answer questions. So, you know, the struggle is real. But yeah, probably, probably not going to be any sympathy from the students for um, NBME test writers or whatnot. So uh, with that being said, we'll just gloss over that and move on. Um, and we'll talk about this because we still we could talk about the coronavirus and yes. it'd be useful for you as a step one taker, correct? That is correct. I would say, although it does seem that um, more relevant new information within, you know, the uh, the world of medicine tends to be delayed a bit um, in terms of getting on to one of these standardized exams. But, oh, yes. But nevertheless, but we can talk about like some virus stuff. And you know what? Let's just leave most of that discussion in there about uh, yeah, the how good question. versus bad this question was. Um, and I actually, you know what? I, ha I can talk about coronavirus for a touch and it'll be okay even for the step one taker, I bet it might not, you'll just have to distinguish this new coronavirus, which I will, we will hold to the end and I'll, I'll talk more about regular coronavirus. How about that first? Yeah. The OG coronaviruses. OG, the original, the, the first aid coronavirus is mentioned in the book, maybe three or four times. Um, not a big player. Yeah. Yeah. No one cared but, about coronaviruses, you know, back in my day. Yeah, I, I mean, so some fun facts. Coronavirus is your most likely cause or, or one of the most likely causes for your common cold patient. That is just a, a particular, you know, snowball or like a softball question about that's not really going to be too board relevant, but people who are getting your regular... Uh, winter month cold. That's kind of a bummer, like for something to be so benign versus so serious and pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of comes into the other parts where it gets mentioned, right? Yeah, I yeah. Guess it, it's related because I suppose exactly. coronaviridae are a common, one of the most common causes of cold uh, because they're so versatile as viruses. Um, and fortunately, most of them are not that virulent. Yeah. So, coronavirus is a positive-stranded RNA virus. Do you remember what positive versus negative-stranded means, Patrick? Because <laughs> I had to look it up and remind myself just to be sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, of, of 
course. I just, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to show off all my <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, for you use students. that every yes, day. Every day, I'm uh, to I'm solve on labor and delivery, and you know, I'm writing in my note. I think this is probably a double stranded uh, uh, DNA virus. You know, versus a single stranded. <laughs> yeah, RNA. exactly. Yeah, no, I I honestly can't remember. And from a clinical side, not very helpful. But for the the step one pay, or uh, patient uh, student <laughs> is what you basically find yourself being. So you've got your double-stranded DNA, single-stranded DNA, single-stranded RNA. And then RNA you think about as being positive sense or negative sense. And essentially, you know, the basic uh, dogma of biology being that like DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein, RNA that is positive sense makes protein. It makes it immediately. So you can put a positive sense RNA in a cell and ribosomes will do their thing and tRNA will come in and you'll get a protein molecule created, right? Versus a negative sense viral RNA has to do some decoding. Being a negative sense, it is a complementary strand of the positive sense RNA and has to be um, oh, yeah. coded again uh, into its complementary form in other, in order to make a, a, an amino acid or protein from that sequence. So positive RNA viruses, which are very common, are the ones that go right into cells and start churning out protein, whereas negative sense will have to be converted before they can start making protein. Nice. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, very, very biology, very not medicine once you're past step one. So coronavirus is one of those positive RNA viruses. Creates its, it creates its proteins once it's running in a cell. There are two particular coronavirus outbreaks that are of old and mentioned, um, one being... SARS, uh, which occurred back in 2002, and then um, MERS, I think, was before that, and I don't recall its date. Both of those were coronavirus. They caused very severe flu-like illnesses. So SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, uh, which is not to be confused with uh, ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, which I would always flip it with. But SARS is a viral prodrome uh, where you're getting a flu-like so, uh, illness and later may develop a, a pneumonia and respiratory failure uh, in those patients. Treatment for it is supportive, which could mean getting oxygen and fluids uh, to being ventilated. And that's not unlike what we're seeing right now, is it, Patrick? No, not really. I would say that's um, exactly kind of what we're looking at. Although part of me as a, a physician wonders, like, is this media sensationalism? Because that was my initial inclination, like, ah, oh, great, the media got a hold of some story again. And if anything, the hysteria is spreading like a virus more than the virus. But but actually, that's that's not true. It's, it's kind of legit. 
the thing about SARS and MERS is they were not as infectious and they had a uh, they had a faster onset of symptoms really so think about you think about a balance with viruses where they have to have a certain a bit of virulence that that's the the part that the symptoms and everything you're seeing and the patient getting sick once they're infected but if they're too virulent they'll kill the patient, right? They'll kill themselves and, off. And, and it makes it hard to transfer and get from person to person if everyone who gets infected ultimately succumbs to the virus. So if you get something that is less infective or less virulent or takes longer to start to have a viral prodrome, it gets spread a lot worse. Uh, so that that kind of seems to be one of the big differences is it's not quite as deadly and it takes a little longer to kind of get running up and running in the human body. So the the COVID nineteen is taking some people are is or we're determining that that's taking up to two weeks to get running uh, in patients and two weeks is actually. A lot of time for foot traffic and for spread uh, before you have symptoms. So if you think about it, you're trying to contain a disease where the person who ever got it got it two weeks ago and did whatever in that meantime. Presumably they traveled to who knows how many grocery stores or supermarkets or uh, convenience stores or touched how many doorknobs or... Um, you know, through their trash and this many garbage bins, like everything is spreading around for a longer period of time before anyone knows that they actually have the disease. And then here you go. It, it's hard to contain, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it probably is important to note that like many uh, infectious diseases, uh, the people at greatest risk for serious consequences to the disease are those who are immunocompromised or at the extremes of age. It's people like us who are super young. I mean, I'm 34. Those of us who are <laughs> healthy adults, we're at less risk of having a serious consequence, but we are definitely in the pool of people who can spread this thing around, right? Yeah, and we're perfect for it, actually, because we're not going to die. We're going to get it. We're going to probably get over it, and we'll give it to other people in the meantime. Bummer. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. You know, I do actually, before, before we end this, just want to um, point out some of the CDC's guidance for what healthcare personnel should know about it. Yeah. I think as far as other virology-related general learning and coronavirus-specific learning. Um, what else do you have for us? Um, so that was, I mean, that's the main thing. The, the vector, typically, they think of, um, I think for SARS and MERS and even the COVID-19, um, birds or bats, I think, are particularly um, a, a reservoir. And so the, they are found in animals, but the transmission of a new one from an animal typically is what causes uh, some of these outbreaks that you see. Uh, so I think the COVID-19 was even related to animal markets in, in China. All right, then just uh, to, well, let me say a few things. 
Uh, number one, there is a you know a growing pandemic with uh, COVID nineteen, um, and this, in my mind, brings up a whole bunch of, or at least one ethical consideration for people who are on medicine and treating patients, and that is, um, can you peace out? Can you peace out from treating people? Um, who who have a serious, potentially communicable uh, illness, which could harm you. And uh, I'm going to say the simple answer is no, you can't. Um, uh, but you should definitely try to protect yourself. And it kind of highlights the uh, sort of sacrifice or patient-centric uh, kind of motivation that, that we all need to have in terms of treating illness, you know, Sometimes, you know, on a, a smaller scale, a uh, patient's going to be sick and need you 30 minutes after you're supposed to go home. And, you know, you, you have to take care of that. You get a, you know, a major trauma, pregnant lady trauma five minutes uh, before you're about to peace out for your shift. And you can't be like, oh, uh, someone else will be down once my shift is relieved. Sometimes you have to go down and take care of that yourself. And sometimes you have to put the patient first by um, subordinating your your own uh, health, frankly, to uh, putting patients first and, and treating them because that's what we are called to do as physicians, which, you know, it's kind of a job risk, job hazard. I don't know. Thoughts on that before I move on? No, I mean, I, I guess you're letting everyone know what they're signing up for. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you're you know. listening to this and you're a medical student already, which you probably are, sorry. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> hopefully you, you realize that is kind of one of the job hazards, um, you know, being exposed to illnesses um, when uh, you are treating people. But so... What I'm going to do now is do this kind of public service announcement for you uh, medical students out there. And I've seen on like Reddit and some of the other forums that uh, a lot of preclinical educational curricula uh, by Stanford and some of the other schools have moved to online only education to deliver material without students needing to congregate together, um, you know, near a healthcare setting, if you will. From the CDC, we have this fact that you can just look up, you know, Google CDC COVID-19 or coronavirus, and uh, there's there's a number of facts there that, that can help you navigate what you need to know clinically as well as uh, what you ought to know to um, help prevent transmission and spread of this uh, illness, and um, I just want to go through a couple of things there. Oh, and note, like many things on uh, the CDC's website, they're updated almost in real time. So if I say something now on March 9th, there's potentially a, a possibility that it will have changed by then. So uh, if you're still curious about uh, coronavirus um, after March 9th, 2020, go to the CDC website. For healthcare professionals frequently asked questions, what are the clinical features of COVID-19? So Kind of what we mentioned before, um, it ranges from mild disease with nonspecific symptoms to acute respiratory illness and severe um, pneumonia, ending in respiratory failure and septic shock. So a wide variety of uh, illness presentations. Uh, they ask, again, who is at risk for COVID-19? 
again, as we mentioned before, those at greatest risk of infection are those who've had a prolonged, unprotected close contact with a patient um, who has symptomatic confirmed COVID-19. Um, and those who live in or have recently been to areas with sustained transmission. So that's why we put in that uh, question vignette that the person had traveled to China um, because we were trying to uh, lead you towards that answer. So who's at risk for severe disease? So this is one of these nonspecific answers um, that, well, not I mean, it is not. I mean, this is important to know, though. Like, it's unsatisfying. All, yeah, and and, and it, it's unsatisfying because every disease is kind of like this in a way. Uh, there are the couple exceptions that you know really hit the younger population more, or the older, or the you know the adult population. But you know, yeah. again, severe disease is typically seen in older adults those with a lot of chronic medical conditions or those who are immunocompromised, uh, therefore less likely to be able to fight off the disease, right? Yeah. Going back to how can you help prevent uh, the spread and transmission of this? Yeah, I I would say there are definitely simple things that uh, you probably will end up needing to follow local guidance for. But if you're you know, just going to be rounding on an oncology service with a bunch of very uh, sick, immunocompromised uh, patients on chemotherapy. Yeah, it's sort of, uh, and this is too early for most of these students, but neutropenic precautions. You think of putting on gowns and masks and gloves before you go in a patient's room so you don't leave any germs behind in that patient's room from yourself. And that that's something you'll encounter once you're in the hospital. When someone infectious. So again, from the CDC, the onset and duration of viral shedding is not exactly known yet. It may be detectable in the upper lower respiratory tract for weeks after the illness is uh, begun, uh, which is similar to SARS and MERS. But the detection of viral RNA does not necessarily mean that an infectious uh, agent is present. So the big concern is with asymptomatic infection uh, for those uh, with the uh, SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19. The Shocking thing, I thought, well, not shocking, but interesting is that it's not yet known what role asymptomatic infection plays in transmission. Uh, But that's one of those things in medicine where it's like, okay, fine, but like we can probably extrapolate from other sorts of similar illnesses that uh, that it just kind of makes sense, you know. And at the same time, CDC also says the role of pre-symptomatic transmission um, is, is unknown. With that stat that you gave about the incubation period uh, being up to like 14 days, um, that is data that is extrapolated from what we know of other coronaviruses, which body fluids can spread infection. There's even more limited data about yeah. the detection of uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus and It has been isolated from bronchial alveolar lavage and uh, upper respiratory tract infections. Some has been detected in blood and stool. Um, Yeah. And just because you can find it, does that mean it's infectious? And guess what? That is currently unknown. 
Um, so there, there's not really a, a good answer on that. You know, which body fluids can spread infection? It should probably be assumed. Uh, well, we'll get into this when we go to how to protect yourself. Basically, yeah, what, I, which I mean, body fluids can spread infection? Mm, not exactly sure yet. Can people recover from COVID-19? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if those who have recovered, can they um, be infected again? Guess what? Maybe. We don't know. <laughs> We're not exactly sure. Um, but extrapolating from the other data related to other coronaviruses, uh, those with the MERS uh, coronavirus um, were unlikely to be reinfected after they had recovered. But we just don't know if a sim similar immunologic protective mechanism exists for those who um, have been affected by COVID-19. Ah, treatment. Um, this one is is probably one of the things that, that, that you really need to think about because I don't want to say the media is sensationalizing it, but the media is doing what the media does with things they don't necessarily understand in detail or from the inside like uh, healthcare providers do. And so you will hear so many different things from blog posts to headlines to social media um, shares and, and whatnot that can kind of make this all confusing. And so you're like, oh, man, you know, uh, I, I think it's pretty safe to assume a lot of medical students and uh, medical professionals will uh, understand that there isn't really a, you know, a drug you can give for this. And there is no definite drug that you can give to, you know, treat this in a knockdown, drag out, you know, you're you're done coronavirus sort of way. A lot of patients will just need some sort of uh, supportive care. I think that that that's probably the concern that a lot of the general population has is there's no treatment. Well, <laughs> yes and no, there's no targeted treatment at this point. But like other diseases, well, you think of a, a patient who gets very sick, we're going to start giving them medications and managing a lot of their their systems for them, like in a critical care patient. I wouldn't say these are therapies for the disease, but you know, keeping someone alive so they can get over the disease is kind of what critical care docs do best. You know, we're managing ventilator settings, um, potentially if they're in shock, giving them fluids and balancing that with uh, a number of pressors. And and that's a whole other topic that, that <laughs> yeah, needs would need a lot of detail and, and probably a critical care doc to come on and explain the surviving sepsis guidelines. Yeah, exactly. And, and then uh, a, a vaccine ideally would be something that would be very helpful um, but we can't just uh, go down to the local supermarket and whip up a vaccine for a new virus to to vaccinate people with. And that could take years to develop, at least a year in uh, what people are trying to promise with some of the news that you might see uh, right now. And then you, you could think about like antiviral medications. While we have some antivirals, they're very specific for viruses that we give them for. And maybe using those in a little more of a general setting might be something that people try, but we don't have any data that would support doing that, right? Right. 
And then I guess I kind of wanted to talk about like quarantine and stuff, but I will hold off. But again, just because I find that interesting because it raises this whole issue of uh, uh, ethics. But last thing just to talk about here, because this has gone on uh, long enough, is what... Uh, CDC again, what healthcare personnel should know about caring for patients with confirmed or possible COVID-19 infection? The guidance presented here is for healthcare uh, personnel to minimize their exposure uh, for when caring for patients with uh, uh, this disease or potentially. So the data, again, is based on what we know about other coronaviruses and the little bit we currently know about COVID-19. But the main thing is, the thought is it's spread mostly from person-to-person contact via respiratory droplets, close contacts, uh, respiratory droplets. So if you're within six feet of a patient with COVID-19 for a long period of time, you're at a uh, higher risk, um, having direct contact with infectious secretions. And since we don't know the transmissibility of the uh, virus within various secretions, uh, pretty safe to assume that sputum, blood, respiratory droplets, and pretty much any you know thing that comes out of the body in liquid form is potentially infectious. Uh, so how do you protect yourself? One thing is to remember to place a face mask on a patient and then isolate them in an airborne infectious isolation room if those are available. Hand hygiene, you know, the uh, uh, the all-important um, wash your hands, use alcohol-based hand rubs before and after all patient contact, using soap and water if your hands are visibly soiled. Kind of the same thing we do with, uh, say, C. diff. Don't touch your hand, or if you're touching stuff, don't touch your face. I think that's something that has been really hit on on the, the media. Avoid touching your face. Yes, yeah. What if you're a, you're a sub-I? You really want to go to this residency program. You want to perform, you know, your best. It's a surgical rotation. So, you know, the whole team pretty much has a respiratory illness with fever hooked up to IV fluids. And they're just like getting IV fluids while operating. Like they're so hardcore. And then you all of a sudden start to have malaise and uh, develop a little bit of a cough. Um, Should you report to work? Well, you're probably just normally run down and malaised, right? I don't know. (laughs) It may not have anything to do with (laughs) being sick. But the answer to that is no. You probably should stay home for once because you're not going to do anything that's going to... I mean, you you probably will be very helpful, I'm sure. But you probably aren't going to be so helpful that uh, they need you there while you're sick. And I just mention this because for those of you in some sort of situation like that, there is often this unspoken pressure to just like, you know, push through whatever, you know, forget about your personal life and health because you have to report for rounds at 5 a.m. I mean, it's good to be hardcore like that and be willing to, you know, put in the time, do the difficult stuff, put patients first, if you will, um, as it's appropriate, even at the expense um, or personal sacrifice, so long as it's not too much. But nevertheless, in, in these days, probably not a bad idea to be like, yo, I have a fever. 
And I got a little bit of a cough, I think. So I can't come into the hospital today. And that is actually probably the the best, most selfless thing you, you could do in that situation. Hopefully you won't, you know, receive any consequences. You definitely shouldn't, but it's kind of like the CDC guidelines if you develop symptoms consistent with COVID-19, like fever, cough, or difficulty breathing, do not report to work. Uh, at least you have the CDC backing you up if your attending is is a little more old school, if you will. <laughs> and we'll, yeah, and it, it will really just see, have to see how, um, how long this draws out, if that's going to be a big problem for a lot of people. All right, man, we uh, went through a lot here. Speaking of having things draw out. (laughs) Right. Yeah, get our app. So next time, uh, we'll be doing the next episode to launch officially our Step 1 Study Smarter series. We've got Physiology by Physio, the Crush Step 1 podcast, past uh, collections of the Step 1 Study Smarter series. All of that's free, available within the ITB mobile app. So go download that, check it out. And as always, thank you so much for listening to us drone on. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.